Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Jennifer Roth. In case I haven't met you before, uh, my name is Jennifer. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. It's just a gift to be with you this morning. We are transitioning this morning from our Daniel series, which we've been in this fall, to our Advent series. Advent is the time when we spend some time remembering the first coming of Christ and the season of Christmas. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at this idea of incarnate. Incarnate is kind of a theological word that means God with us. Sometimes in our Christmas songs, we sing Emmanuel, God with us. It's that same idea. It's when the divine came to earth and became present with humanity. In Colossians 1, verse 15, it says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. That's what incarnate means. The incarnation is when Jesus came and became the visible image of what until that point had been the invisible God. And... Through the power of the Holy Spirit in us, remember when Jesus walked the earth, he promised that when he left, he wouldn't leave us as orphans, but that he would come to us, that the Father would send his Spirit to live in his children. And so we have the incarnate Holy Spirit living in us, and we can make the invisible God visible to the world around us as we reflect the nature and the character of Christ that's in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. I have a friend who tells her daughter, hey, you are incarnating every day at Whitaker Middle School. Everywhere we go, we are incarnating Jesus. We are the hands and feet and the image of Jesus to the world around us. And so during this Advent season, we're going to look at the past and the present and the future, the past of the prophets and the promised Messiah and the promise of what the incarnation would bring, the past of when Jesus came and what his incarnational life taught us and demonstrated for us and accomplished for us, and then looking at the present and how through the Holy Spirit, we can do those same things and bring that same presence into our world with that hope of eternity with Jesus in our hearts. So one of the things that we do during Advent season, it's one of our beloved traditions, is that we have Advent candles. Every week there's a different word that we focus on as our celebration of Advent. So I'm going to invite a family to come up and and join me up here to light our Advent candle and to do our Advent reading. And if this family looks a little familiar to you, it's because I usually show you pictures of them. Uh, But I thought I'd do one better this Thanksgiving weekend and bring them with me. So we're going to light the Advent candle of hope this weekend. Here we are, the first weekend in Advent. The church has celebrated this tradition since the 400s as a preparation for the Christmas celebration. Advent means to come. And so we're celebrating the coming of Christ, his birth at Christmas. And all, it also anticipates his second coming as, as, we, appreciate, as we anticipate him um, returning. Listen as we read some scriptures about hope and light the first Advent candle. We would like to remind you that we We are are a people people of hope. Isaiah 9 says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the the greatness greatness of of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
We are a people of hope. In John 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We are a people of hope. Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And And we we boast boast in the the hope of the the glory glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. We are a people of hope. And so this Advent season, may Christ be under you. A firm foundation of hope. May Christ be over you. Your hope of protection and provision. May Christ be around you. Encircling you with his hope. And may Christ be within you. Filling you with hopeful power. You You are are a people people of of hope. hope. Thank you, family. been super fun to get to do that with them all weekend and I only had to bribe them with a little bit of good food. (laughs) So this baby that was born in a manger to a virgin mother changed everything. It reads like a fairy tale at times, but there's nothing fairy tale-ish about it. It changed everything. The incarnation of the living God coming in human form to our earth changed everything. Not just for people 2,000 years ago, but for you and I today in our world and in our time. And in those changes, as we look at the prophets and we look at Jesus' life, we can see some of the specific shifts that changed in our reality as a result of the incarnate Christ being born in a manger. Preaching team has been camping out in Isaiah chapter 9 as we, prote- we what did we do? We prepared uh, for this series. It's one of those things we do. Some of this that I'm about to read, you will have heard because it was part of what the reading was today, but we're going to go over it again together and get a full picture of what the prophet Isaiah promised about the coming Messiah. If you would like to read along with me, it's on page 572 in the Bible that's in your pew ahead of you. It's Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at what the prophet said about how the Messiah would change the reality of the world as we know it. So starting in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. 
You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. This promise that by the passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies, these things would come to pass with the coming of the Messiah, the incarnate Christ. God come to make visible the invisible. There's several shifts that happen. One of them is is right at the beginning. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. There's a shift from darkness to light. There's a shift from being oppressed to being free. And there's a shift that we see that was the one we're going to talk about today, which is a shift from battle to rest. Look with me again at verse 5. It says, The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. Their boots and their uniforms, those necessities for the battle that was constant around them, would be fuel for the fire. Why? Because there would be no more battle. There would be rest. The prophet says it this way in Isaiah chapter 2. Verse 4, he says, In the last days they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. So this people group that has always known battle is being told that with their promised Messiah is going to come this time of rest when there is no battle. And so one of the things I want to pause and think about this morning before we dive in further is this. What are our battles? See, in the Old Testament, the battle was literal fighting for land with swords and spears. I don't fight for land with swords and spears. I don't know about you, but that's not my battle. In the New Testament, when Jesus came, he came and inserted himself into humanity in a time when Jerusalem was an occupied country. Israel was an oppressed nation by the Romans. The religious leaders had made following God so difficult with their added rules and their added restrictions that that the stress of even following God was an anxiety-ridden thing of wash your hands here and wash this there and make sure you do the right thing. There was all this religious tension. Those were the battles of that time, and that's not my battle. I don't live in an occupied land. I don't live with an oppressive military over me. So what is my battle? What is your battle? What is the battle that God's promised rest applies to in our day, today, in our hearts and in our lives? For me, one of them, as simple as it may seem, is being overly busy. Because being overly busy, it it makes me feel like I don't have enough to take care of the things that are mine to take care of. I can't be all the places and be present with all the people and take care of all the things that are mine to take care of. And so this stress rises up in me that when a friend texts and says, hey, do you want to go to lunch? And I go, yes. And I pull up my calendar and I go, shoot, how about six weeks from now at 9.30 to 10? (laughs) 
Busyness is a battle that rages inside of me that takes my attention and it saps my energy. Another battle that rages inside of me that ties in with my busyness is the fact that I have a sense of over-responsibility for the world. I'm just going to say this about me, and you can decide if it relates to you too. But somebody recently asked me, Jennifer, when did you decide that you needed to be responsible for all things? That it all rested on you? And the truth is, when something goes wrong in the life of someone around me, my first thought is, it's my fault. What did I do wrong? I carry this sense of responsibility that if I could understand or if I could see or if I could say or if I could do, then I could fix this. I could fix myself. I could fix you. I could make you happy. I could keep this thing floating. I could make this project go smoother. One of my battles is this sense that I'm carrying burdens that aren't mine to carry. Honestly, one way to phrase this would be to say, I've got a God complex. I'm trying to be God in people's lives, and I wonder if some of you need to examine your heart about maybe having a God complex and feeling like there are things that are on your plate to do that really aren't yours to carry. Another battle I face in our day and age is when I read the news or I listen to a podcast or I, I'm part of a conversation with people that I care about. And friends, the opinions that are out there in our world are so diverse. The conflicts are getting more and more polarized. And there are days that I just feel like I don't know which way's up. I don't know who to listen to. I don't know who to believe. I don't know which opinion reflects the nature and the character of God best. There are times when my mind is at battle, when my soul is in battle and my body is in battle. And yet, the promise says that when the Messiah came and in the incarnation of Jesus, we would move from a place of battle to rest. King Solomon says in 1 Kings that because his father David had been the, uh, the king, the the warrior king, he was constantly at battle. He had never had time to build the temple. So Solomon was talking about how he was able to focus on building the temple because he had rest on every side. The battles were won and he had rest on every side. Friends, think about the battle that you face. It might be an internal battle, internal wounds from your upbringing. Self-judgment and self-condemnation. It might be an external battle, a conflict in your middle of at work. Maybe your marriage is really struggling. Maybe you're trying to figure out how to parent your children. Maybe there's a bully at school or there are mean girls. Or Think about a battle that's a part of your daily life. And think about this. What would it feel like to have rest on every side? Truly consider that for a minute. That battle that's right here in your mind right now, that face that's in front of you, what would it feel like to have rest on every side? There's a longing that rises up in me. There's a deep breath. I can start to feel it, but I don't know how to live there. And so we look to Jesus because the promise of the prophet was the incarnation would move us from battle to rest. And so we see in the life of Jesus how he moved from battle to rest. And we can learn what is in his calling and his promise of rest as we look at his life. So how did Jesus engage in rest when his world was a battle around him? The first thing we see that was when Jesus um, engaged in ministry, he was compassionate he was a healer. He spoke words of truth and love, and the crowds swarmed to him. Every day there were crowds surrounding him, and yet he made time to pull away. 
He would leave the entire crowd of needy people and go in the, in the boat and cross to the other side. He would get up early in the morning and get away from even his disciples and go and, and be alone with his father. Jesus made a practice of getting away. Friends, sometimes what hinders us from rest is that we can't step away from needy people. Somehow that God complex makes us think that if we step away, they're going to collapse. And the truth is, sometimes God calls us to meet human needs. That's a part of partnering with him. But Jesus demonstrated that even in the face of amazing need, there are times to pull away and to regroup, to pray and to listen and to refill and to refuel. Jesus took time to get away, even in the midst of crushing need and a chaotic world. Jesus also demonstrates that when he came back from those times away, he had been listening to God. And he tells us, I only do what the Father tells me to do, and I only say what the Father tells me to say. His entire ministry was dependent on Father God. When he went away for those times of rest, he got his marching orders, and when he came back, God was the one responsible for the outcomes. Jesus was obeying his Father, and in that obedience came rest. Sometimes I think we feel like obedience is that thing that chafes and it makes us work harder and it's a hard thing. But we see in the life of Jesus that his obedience to the Father gave him soul rest. Not the I don't have to go to work today rest or the I got a good night's sleep rest, but a it is well with my soul rest because I am aligned with the Father in his work. Jesus demonstrated a dependence on God Jesus also demonstrated that he didn't fight the battle that everybody expected him to fight. Based on the promises of the prophets, the Israelites were expecting a military Messiah, someone who would come and gather an army and beat their oppressors and, and, and gain freedom for Jerusalem and freedom for Israel. And Jesus didn't make any swords. He didn't pull out any spears. He didn't gather an army. As a matter of fact, when he was challenged about taxes, should we pay our taxes to Rome, these oppressors, and taxes were part of the oppression because it was exorbitant financial pressure. He took a coin and it had Caesar's face and he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. Do you know what he did? he extricated himself from the battle that they wanted him to fight. I think Jesus understood that there would always be Romans. Before the Romans, there were the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Philistines. And after the Romans would come all the history that I don't know because I'm not a history student, but let's just say the Republicans and the Democrats. <laughs> there would always be Romans. The battle isn't for the Romans. The battle is for the hearts of men and the hearts of women. The battle was for the kingdom of God. He came and he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and be baptized. He did not fight the battle they expected him to fight. He fought the battle for our hearts. He convicted us of our sin and he said, if you will repent and follow me, you will find freedom. If you live in my kingdom, then that kingdom is irrelevant that kingdom is irrelevant if you will live in the truth of who God is and who he calls you to be. If we have the hope of eternal life, then a kingdom that can kill us has no threat over us. It was why the, new, the early church was so threatening, because they were no longer afraid of death. They were no longer afraid of their oppressors, and they were no longer actually paying any attention to their oppressors. They were living fully in the focus of the Son of God who was saying, come and be present with me, repent and be baptized and tell the word of the love of God. 
of the forgiveness of sins and of the freedom that can be lived. He did not fight the battles that they expected him to fight. In Ephesians, Paul tells us this about the battles that we fight. Ephesians 6, 12, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Friends, we have an enemy. He exists to steal and kill and destroy. We find that in John 10, 10. He sets himself up against God and everything that is good and holy and right and peaceful and loving and all of the conflict, all of the tension, all of the violence, all of the spiritual disasters, they come down to this one thing. There are battles in the heavenly realms. I want you to step back for a minute to that battle that you pictured a few minutes ago. And I want you to recognize that that battle is not with the person who is in your mind right now. If it is an internal battle, that battle is not against yourself. If it is an external battle, that, not, that battle is not against your coworker or your spouse or your parent or the bully or the fill in the blank. The battle is against the powers and the principalities of this dark world whose whole purpose is to continue to stir up the tension and the conflict and keep us at odds with each other and to keep us at odds with God. Jesus did not fight the battle that they expected him to fight. And yet he promised us that we would move from battle to rest. It wasn't by ending the battle with the Romans. The battle with the Romans was still present even when Jesus died, was resurrected, and went back to heaven. So we have to know this. Our rest does not depend on our external circumstances. The promise of rest does not depend on what's happening in the world or the people around us. The promise of rest depends on our internal reality. The promise of rest depends on if we have aligned ourselves with this kingdom, with the kingdom of God, where we have repented and we have chosen to believe in the forgiveness and the finished work of the Son of God. That is where rest comes from. Not just physical, I'm not tired, that's important, but that it is well with my soul, rest. So how do we move from this battle to the rest when the battle isn't ceasing when the chaotic world that we live in is going to carry on with its frenetic pace around us. Friends, our culture is not a friend of rest. Our culture does not encourage us to find peace. Our culture stirs up the frenzy, right? So how do we move from this battle to rest? Let's look together at Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 28. Then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. Yep, that's me. So far you've got my attention. (laughs) And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. My yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Some of you have made have noticed this yoke when you walked in today. It's not actually part of the Christmas decor. It's an old, old-fashioned kind of beat-up, really heavy yoke. If you don't know what one of these is for, it was old-fashioned farming. The oxen would have this laid on their shoulders, and their heads would be through these loops, and they'd be hooked to the farm implement, and they would plow or whatever they were going to do out in the field that day. The fascinating thing to me about this passage of scripture is that we have here the classic invitation of Jesus to rest. Come to me, 
all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And yet his metaphor is an implement of work, a heavy implement of work, whose purpose is to strap in and pull and plow and not just work, but work hard. So why this metaphor in the classic invitation to rest fascinating thing in Isaiah chapter 9 that we read earlier, looking back at verse 4, it says this, for you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. One of the promises of the coming Messiah was that he would break the yoke of slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. But in the upside down kingdom that Jesus taught, he did not break the yoke of the Romans. He did not lift the burden of Roman occupation from their shoulders. And when we come to this classic invitation to rest, what we find is he's offering us a different yoke. I don't think it's an accident that he called it a yoke here when it was a yoke here. There are two yokes. There's the yoke of slavery and the burden to the world's way of thinking, to the frenzied pace of the world, to the fear of the authorities that are around us. And then there is the yoke of the kingdom of God where Jesus is partnered with us. In that yoke, it's Jesus and it's Jennifer. And it's an opportunity and an invitation for me to pull side by side with Jesus and to learn from Jesus. See, rather than having to bear the yoke of over-responsibility and busyness and conflict and trying to figure out all the things, I get to align myself with Jesus and I get to let him choose when do we start and when do we stop. What is the pace of our work throughout each day and how often do we need a break? Where are we going and which field are we working in and which field are we passing by? See, that yoke is an implement of work, but it's an invitation to rest because it's an invitation to partner with God in the calling that he has on our life. How many of you know that when you get up every day, there are things that have to be done? There are, there's work that we are called to. There are things that we are responsible for that are ours to do. And yet the rest of Jesus is the invitation to align ourselves with him and allow him to lead us through the day. That yoke is heavy. It has a purpose. It's an instrument of work. And yet it's an invitation to align with Jesus and to pull with him. It's an invitation to learn from Jesus. Some people have said that when you had a young ox that you needed to break in, you would put them in the yoke with an older ox who could teach them the pace and keep them going in the right direction. We learn from Jesus as we align ourselves with him. This yoke is a picture of that invitation to align with the incarnate Jesus and learn from him how to do life from a place of rest. Because you see, rest is not the absence of work. Rest is the presence of peace. This yoke as a picture of rest is that there is work that I will do. It's not the absence of work, but it's the fact that when I am in the yoke with Jesus, there is a presence of peace because he is the one guiding. He is the one carrying. He is all powerful. He is all knowing. He knows exactly what we need. And it's just mine to do what? To obey to trust the good God that he knows where he's going and that he knows his purpose for me on this earth and that every day I get to follow his calling and obey. You know, there was a season in my life when I called obey the O word. 
it was just such a hard word for me because it, it came with this sense of, I have to do the right thing. It's kind of like the picture of obey would be the, the ring in the ox's nose that you get pulled around and jerked around by. You just have to obey. And I love the picture of the yoke as a place of obedience because it's not a ring in the nose. It's a willing submission to come under the authority of God in order to have the freedom of doing life. See, when we come under the authority of God, the chaos settles. And the burden is lifted because he is the one carrying the burden. Rest is not an absence of responsibility. Rest is not, I just get to do whatever I want. Rest is the presence of peace because we are allowing the God that we trust to carry the burden. And it's simply ours to follow and obey. I say simply, and I know there's nothing simple about it. (laughs) But the yoke is a picture for us of what true rest is. So how do we enter this rest in the same way that Jesus did? First of all, we create a space for physical rest. Just as Jesus got away from the crowds, even away from his disciples, to pray and spend time and listen to God, we need to have rhythms of rest in our life where we pull away and we recognize that we have human limits. Our body has limits. We literally have to sleep. It's just a reality. There's a 24-hour rhythm of sleep and rest, and we need sleep and wakefulness, and we need that sleep. And some of us, this is where you need to stop listening to the message, because all you need to hear is this. You have been pushing against the limits of human required sleep, and you need to figure out a way to get more hours of sleep every night. It's just that simple. Our body, our mind, our heart, all are more healthy emotionally when we get enough sleep. God created 24-hour rhythms of day and night, of wakefulness and sleep, and we need to be living into those rhythms. Some of us need to just learn to pause in the middle of a day, in the middle of our work, and step back and take a deep breath and say, God, where are you in this? What are you calling to me in this? What do I need in this? You know, when we were in grade school, we called that recess. You'd be working away at your desk and your brain is going and you have to be quiet and you got to do what the teacher says and then they say recess and you get to go out and you get to run around on the playground. You get to scream and yell and play with your friends and jump and do whoever. Have you ever been on recess duty? Kids are just, this is ha, we're free. Some of us need to plan recess into our days. Just a five or 10 minute break from what we're doing to take a deep breath and come at it. That's rest. Some of us need to remember the Sabbath rest. God created a rhythm of seven days, six days of work and one day of rest. It's found in the beginning of creation. It took six days to create the world and on the seventh day he rested. He he included it in the Ten Commandments. It was that important. Take a Sabbath rest. And in Hebrews he tells us there is still the promise of Sabbath rest. Friends, Sabbath isn't just a commandment. It's a calling and a promise. It's God's promise to us that if we will live in his created rhythm of six and one, six days to work and one to rest, he will refill us and he will refuel us and he will refocus us. I really believe that one of the reasons we struggle with Sabbath, let me just put this on me. You can decide if you agree with me or not. I struggle with Sabbath because I'm afraid that if I pull back and give myself permission to have a day that's unplugged, my phone isn't on, and I don't have to be productive, that the whole world is going to collapse. Nobody's going to be able to do what they need to do if I'm not present. (laughs) And that is an exaggeration, but if I dig deep in my heart, that is a piece of the reality that we struggle with Sabbath because we're not sure that God can do it if we're not on duty. (laughs) 
So one of the things about the practice of Sabbath is that releasing to God of responsibility and saying, God, you've got this and I don't have to be on this 24 hours. And that is that practice not only gives our body physical rest, but it gets us into this habit of releasing things to God, which is the second thing that we see Jesus doing. He released the burden of responsibility. Remember, he asked God, I only do what the Father says, and he went and did what the Father said. We need to learn from that. We need to let go of control as we align with Jesus. And when the anxiety rises, to release the anxiety to him, to quit trying harder. One of the ways I like to look at this is to leave the omnis to God. You're like, what is she talking about? Well, there's those big theological words, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, those things that mean that God is certain things. And what would happen if we would leave the omnis to God? Let's look at the first one. Um, So the first one is omniscient, that God is all-knowing. There is nothing anywhere in our universe, whether it be internal in the deepest recesses of who you are, or external at the far corners of the world, or in hidden secret places, there is nothing God does not know. He knows it all. There is nothing that will happen today that is a surprise to God. And there is nothing that happened yesterday that God doesn't know how it got there or how it worked out or that he doesn't know how it impacted you and how you feel inside and something that you haven't even told anybody yet that you feel. There's nothing that God doesn't know. He's all-knowing. And do you know what that means? You don't have to be. And the thing is, you're like, well, Jennifer, I know I'm not all-knowing, of course. But think about it. Think about that battle that you fight. Where do you have pressure on yourself to be all-knowing? To know things that you can't know or to figure them out or to understand them. Friends, understanding, being able to wrap our heads around something makes us feel in control. It feels safer and it feels more secure because we understand it. But we do not have to be all-knowing if we recognize that we are yoked together. We are aligned with the God of the universe who is all-knowing. And if he is the one directing our process every day, then we don't have to be all-knowing because he is. And rest rises up in us because we're not carrying the burden of figuring out why or how we're going to do what we're doing. The next thing we know about God is that he's omnipotent. This means that he's all-powerful. It means that in all those things that he knows, there's nothing he can't handle. He has the power to create out of nothing. He has the power to recreate out of what he's already created. He has the power to redeem, to restore, to heal, to raise from the dead, to convict of our sin, to bring justice in our world. God is all-powerful. And do you know what that means? You and I don't have to be. (laughs) I know. Jennifer, I'm not all-powerful. We get that. But think about it. Where are there places in your life where if you really dig deep, you actually are trying to be all-powerful? If I could just do this or say this or be enough, then this situation could change or that person would understand or this would look different. When we are yoked to the living God, he gets to be all-powerful. We get to walk beside him. That is a restful place. And the third omni is omnipresent. God is everywhere. There is nowhere you can go that he is not present. The psalmist says, if I go to the heights, you are there. If I go down to the depths, you are there. Here's the reality of God being all-present. There is no door that you will walk into that he is not already in that room. And there is no door that you will walk out of that he is not already in front of you outside of that door. There is nowhere you can go that God is not present with you. There is nowhere where you are alone or the people that you love are alone. And the reality of God being all present is that you don't have to be. 
This one really hits me because I think I find that I, I, I wrestle with, I can't be everywhere I need to be. I can't do everything I need to do. I can't be at the parent-teacher meeting and the soccer game and get my house clean and prepare Thanksgiving dinner all at the same time. Those weren't my realities those weekend. This is, that's just an example. My reality this weekend was a potluck. All I had to take was the green bean casserole. It was nice. But there are times in our lives when we can't be all the places or we can't be with all the people and we feel like, well, if I can't be present with that person, they're not going to be okay. Friends, God is all present. We do not have to be all present. We leave the omnis to God because true rest comes from knowing who is responsible for the outcome. True rest, that it is well with my soul rest, comes from knowing who is responsible for the outcome. Rest isn't about the absence of work. You and I will work hard. We will align ourselves with God and we will pull and we will work hard. But the rest, the internal rest, even while we're working, comes from knowing who is responsible for the outcome. We read it already in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. It says, the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. Who will make it happen? The Lord of heaven's armies. And he is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present. So we create space to physically rest. We release the burden of responsibility. We ask God, what are the tensions that I'm trying to control? And we say, we place these tensions in your hands. And we pick our battles. Jesus didn't fight the battles that he, they expected him to fight. Jesus fought the battle for the heart of men and women rather than the battle against the Romans. Friends, we need to test the battles that rise up in our hearts, the concerns that rise up in our heart, and we need to say, God, is this a place to engage or withdraw? Is this concern concern you? Is this one that you're asking me to put on the yoke and pull hard with you and fight this battle? Or is this one where you're saying, withdraw, extricate, this isn't actually the battle that you need to be fighting. We need to pick our battles because the battles that range, rage around us are only gonna cease when we recognize which ones God is calling us to engage with. And the fourth thing that we do is that we live in the it is finished on the cross. There was the promise of the incarnation. Jesus came. He lived his life. He did all the things. He, he lived a sinless life. He paid the price for our sin. He modeled how to live as a place of rest. He moved from battle to rest. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. Friends, we will only be able to enter true rest when we recognize that, that none of it really ultimately rests on us. It is already finished. He has done it. Rest does not depend on our external circumstances, but on our internal reality. Are we living internally in that it is finished? So I would ask you today, what is your internal reality? Do you know Jesus? Do you know the saving work of this hope in your heart? Do you have these battles that are raging and wrestle with anxiety and tension? Do you find yourself weary and worn out? What would it look like? What would it feel like to really live with rest on all sides? Imagine with me, what would happen if we could live like this? If we could create space for physical rest? If we could truly release the responsibility for the outcomes to Jesus? If we could pick our battles not based on what offends us the most, but based on what God is concerned about? What would happen if we could live like this? I'll tell you what would happen. We would incarnate Jesus to a broken world. We would be able to live as a reflection of the restful, peace-giving, whole 
love of God at work in the world. We would incarnate Jesus to a broken, weary, battle-sore world. Friends, we would get to make Jesus visible. Let's pray. Father, your invitation to rest is so precious. As we think about what it might feel like to have rest on all sides, we are hungry, we are thirsty for something different from the frenetic, conflicted, chaotic pace of our world. And yet we often don't know how to get there. And so today, God, we come to you as your children saying, we see your promise. Now grace us with your presence and teach us how to live in a new way, how to live from a place of rest. God, give us courage to align ourselves with you, to accept the yoke that is yours and reject the yoke of the world and their expectations and their frenzied pace. God, lead us into places of rest. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.